Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek podcast. Join Ken and me today as we explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and rarely go where no podcast has gone before because we're talking about Lower Decks this week. I'm Enton Enfisbrook in the Science Department, and joining me is Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. Hi, Ken. Hello, Ensign Enfis. I'm so excited to finally be chatting with you on Transporter Lock. Me too. I've been on this, I've been on every episode, I think, but not actually on any episodes at the same time. I did the voice for the beginning and the ending, but I've not been a guest yet, so this is fun. Yeah, it's true. You and I have known each other for about 10 years. We've been co-workers Mm -hmm. for about three and a half years, and we've both been Star Trek fans since the days we were born, basically. (laughs) Yeah, I think I was about seven or eight when I started watching Next Generation. So, you know, quite a long time ago. Were you watching it from the day it premiered? Because you and I are the same age. So did we start watching the same night? Um, I don't know if I, I don't think I saw the very first episode. My brother was into it. And I do remember it being a really terrible season one episode that I just sat and watched with him one time. And I was like, that was neat. And he said, that was terrible. <laughs> so that's, that's mainly what I remember. There's something about the, the mud monster thing. I don't remember the exact episode title, but it was not in hindsight, it was indeed not good. And it was before that show grew the beard. The mud monster sounds like Armis in the episode Skin of Evil, where they killed Tasha Yar. I think that was the one, yeah. Yeah, that was very early. That was in the first season. I started watching the night that it premiered, which was 35 years ago this past week. TNG just turned 35, and people like Gates McFadden and the likes were tweeting their memories of the show. I think we're so fortunate that the cast is still alive and well and able to come back for Picard so soon. No, I mean, not so soon, mm-hmm. but soon from now, uh, mm-hmm. because there are other Star Trek shows where, of course, the original series actors have passed on uh, Voyager. Some of the actors have not done so well and don't really do the cons. But everybody from TNG, I mean, that's where it started for you and me. And we're still here and they're still here. Yep, absolutely. I think I was really into TNG. And I guess one of my weaknesses, which we might end up talking about because of one of the most recent Lower Decks episodes is I did not watch much Deep Space Nine. And I am still kind of behind on that because I remember watching the first season and then being kind of eh about it. And then later catching up with um, the DVD collections of the uh, that they were doing with thematic episodes. So I saw like the captain's collection and the holodeck collection. And a lot of those had deep space nine episodes. So I've seen episodes sprinkled throughout the the run of deep space nine, but I've never actually sat and watched the entire run. Is that the only star Trek show you've skipped since TNG? No enterprise. I skipped as well. I think I saw the first couple of episodes and did not get into that one, but uh, watched all of TNG watched all of Voyager and all of Discovery, and now all of Lower Decks, and all of Picard, and Strange New Worlds. So (laughs) I think I've not seen all of Prodigy either. I've seen the first several episodes. Okay. Do you think you'll ever go back and fill in not only DS9, but also Enterprise? 
DS9 probably, especially because references to it keep coming up in Lower Decks that I want to be able to get. And there are some really great episodes in there that I've seen. I remember I pulled up the um, Trials and Tribulations episode to show my partner because he'd never seen it. And I said, oh, no, this is fantastic. You've got to see this one. And it's so well done. And I'm so fascinated by the chemistry between Garak and Bashir. So that might keep me going back and watching more. But I don't know about Enterprise. I didn't love the concept and I feel like I'd have to go back and watch, um, I don't know, First Contact and some of those sort of movies to to get into those, the right headspace for it. But mm-hmm. I don't know. There's time. I have Paramount yeah. Plus. You know, all things can happen. <laughs> Yeah, Enterprise, when it was first launched, a lot of people were concerned because Star Trek is about moving forward, and Enterprise was a step backward. It was 100 years before TOS. But I don't think that complaint has really held up because the first two seasons of Discovery and also Strange New Worlds are also set before the original series, and those are working out just fine. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's something I didn't love the cast or the characters as much in Enterprise. Um but I love Discovery and I love Strange New Worlds. So I don't know. It might be worth going back. It might have been the theme song bothered me with kind of the country thing was so different from every other Star Trek intro. So, <laughs> Well, that's partly because when they first released Enterprise, they didn't even call it Star Trek. It was just called Enterprise. They were actually oh. trying to break away from all the baggage that came with Star Trek and said, hey, let's make this a great entry point by setting it earlier so that you don't need to know anything that has happened before because it hasn't happened yet. And we'll just call it Enterprise and we'll trick people into watching a Star Trek. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that backstory about it. Yeah, they eventually gave up on that. They added Star Trek to the intro uh, to the name of the show. And they really, especially in the fourth and final season, really dug into the history of Star Trek and laying down explanations for what happens next. Like uh, what happened to Khan Noonien Singh and who was responsible for his augmentations and why do some Klingons have bumpy foreheads and some do not, <laughs> and, you know, and what happened to, we don't like to talk about it, <laughs> especially with offworlders. Yeah. But they even yeah. had tie-ins to the mirror universe and to TOS. And uh, some of that stuff actually came back in discovery for example. So uh, it didn't really matter in Discovery. It was just like an offhanded mention. But mm-hmm. I thought the fourth season of Enterprise was great. And the third season was two years after 9-11. And they did this like whole terrorist season-long plot where they were trying to stop people from attacking Earth. And mm. some people felt it was a little too soon. Other people felt like Enterprise was best when it was episodic as opposed to a whole season-long arc. But mm. so, but of the Star Trek yeah. you have seen, what was your favorite series? Well, until like two years ago, I would probably say Next Generation, like most people. You know, it's the first Star Trek I got into. And I realized I also haven't seen all of original series at this point. I've seen probably half. Um, but and I can't remember if I mentioned I have seen all of Discovery when I was rattling off the Star mm-hmm. Treks before. But Yeah, um, I feel like in the last couple of years, with all the new stuff coming out, probably my 
my favorite was Discovery for a long time. Like that, I love Discovery. I love the way it's structured. I think that Star Trek benefits from having shorter seasons because some of the older shows, I feel like there's just so many filler episodes that are not either, either they're great single episodic things or they're just drag, like they're just drivel. Uh, so having a tighter season, I think benefits all of the new Star Treks, really. They can focus more on like a cohesive arc, or at least make sure they're putting, you know, the best effort into every single one. But now I think it's a toss up for me between Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks as my favorites, honestly. Really? What yeah. is it that you like about Lower Decks? It took me a few episodes to warm up to it. At first, I was like, you know, I've already seen Futurama. But <laughs> once I think it found its own voice and was able to continue and really bring out kind of the best and the silliest that Star Trek has to offer, plus a new perspective on all the strange things that happen because we're focusing on the crew of the lower decks and not the bridge crew for once. So seeing you know, how they get roped into things, kind of like John Scalzi's Red Shirts novel, where it's like, this is from the perspective of the people who don't know what's going on most of the time and get roped into away missions that they're not fully briefed on and they end up, you know, being the casualties. Uh, and Strange New Worlds has that great campy opulence of original series that that is so endearing and enduring, but with a modern effects budget. So it looks amazing, but that's still very colorful and very campy and doesn't take itself so deeply seriously, though it does cover some serious issues. I think it strikes just such a wonderful balance between the serious and the silly. Uh, and Lower Decks really goes hard on the silly, and I like that a lot too. <laughs> I've often wondered why Star Trek was not breaking out into other genres. Because Star Trek is a setting. It's a time and a place. It's not a mm. kind of story. Like, you could have the TV show Friends set in the world of Star Trek. You could call it 10 Forward. And they, and they had never <laughs> done that. You know, so, yeah. it's, so it's exciting for me to see that they're finally getting it. That they can do other kinds of stories in Star Trek and still have it be Star Trek. And Lower Decks is their comedy series. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. Like, I just have had some of the best out loud laughs with this show compared to a lot of other comedy series where maybe I'll chuckle a bit. But this show has made me laugh out loud to the point where I've had to rewind little bits over and over because I didn't hear the following dialogue because I was laughing too hard. <laughs> and you're laughing because you're you get the joke, you have all the lore and all the background mm -hmm. needed to get all those references. And still, I know there's a lot of references I don't get because I didn't see all of Discovery, all of original series. Like there's some that my partner gets more because he has seen all of original series and I think all of DS9 uh, and probably has read some of the novels and everything like that. So we have different amounts of experience, I guess, with it. I had seen Voyager before he had. So we worked through seasons four through seven together on Voyager. It was a probably third or fourth time rewatch for me and first time watch for him. And I was like, I'm not going to make you watch the first few seasons. They're not great. <laughs> they didn't grow the beard until about four season four, in my opinion. So uh, it was interesting. And then there was still a lot of filler episodes and we're watching it like, yeah, I feel like if they had had 10 episodes a season, this could have been so much stronger, but that wasn't the culture at the time. You know, one of the things I like about the longer seasons, or maybe this isn't the longer seasons, but the fact that it was on network TV, 
is they would have to fill one hour with commercials to do a story. And so sometimes they might write a story and they'd be like, okay, this is a 50 minute story and we have five minutes of commercials. We need another five minutes of content. Let's do something about data and his cat or Jordy growing (laughs) a beard, you know, or Tasha Yar talking to Wesley Crusher about drugs. There are just all these small character moments where when Mm. you're only telling the story you have to, and you're not filling time, you get a little bit less character development. Yeah, I've heard that, especially as a criticism against discovery. And generally speaking, I actually disagree with that comment about discovery because they manage to make the plots bring out the characters uh, and how they react to different things. I mean, seeing Tilly's arc over the few seasons we've had of Discovery, she's a very different character than she was in season one. And it's all been earned because of the different positions she's been put in through the plots. So I don't know. I felt like they managed to do both in Discovery really well, but that I realize is not the majority opinion, or at least it's not the loudest opinion on Discovery. I really love the characters on Discovery. There are people on the bridge crew who have not had as much opportunity to be developed, but I think that just leaves room for more interesting things they could do in the future. Like they have hinted at, um, you know, a couple of different story arcs that haven't fully developed yet for some of the other bridge crews. So I think there's a chance. Discovery has done some of those moments well, but I think not as well as some of the other series we've been watching lately, especially Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks, your two favorites of the new series. I think Mm. we got to know those characters much faster. Yeah, I agree. I think they, because the beginning of Discovery focused so much on Michael's perspective, we got we didn't get as much opportunity to get to know everyone else because we were seeing Michael's story. And especially, but after that third episode, everything takes a hard right turn. And what we thought the show was going to be about, suddenly it's not. It's not about what happens when you betray Starfleet and, you know, what happens when you, when there's the Klingon war and everything. And then suddenly it's like, nope, we're back into a bridge crew. And by the way, the captain might be evil, question mark, which I found fascinating because the captains in Star Trek are almost always portrayed as mostly infallible, uh, logical, passionate people. And having a captain who definitely has his own agenda was so interesting to me. And it's one of the things I really fell in love with about that show. Also, Jason Isaacs is just an amazing actor. And you got to meet him. I did for about five seconds to take a photo. <laughs> it it went slightly viral when I posted it on Twitter because I was, uh, it's like I kind of looked like Tilly in my Discovery uniform, that my hair was much shorter and I had glasses on. But, um, or maybe, no, I don't think I was wearing glasses for that shoot. But yeah, he was very nice. And I basically was like, I had my five seconds said, hey, can we do a thing like this where you're looking very disdainful and I'm looking enthusiastic? He's like, sure. And that was pretty much the extent of my interaction with him other than he complimented the uniform and said, that is a nice uniform, mercifully not as tight as the ones we had to wear. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, yeah, I imagine that gets uncomfortable over time. Well, that's a nice detail for him to share. (laughs) Yeah. What what conference or convention was that at? This was at Dragon Con in, I believe, 2018, and it was it was really cool. But yeah, these the, the photo ops you spend a great deal of money for them, and they are just efficiently moving through as many people as possible as quickly as possible. So you got to be like, you've got your five seconds, you get your photo, you leave. So it's it's fun, but 
it would be more fun to actually be able to sit and have a beer with somebody. And, you know, like, I would love to hear about Jason Isaac's thoughts on Discovery, but, you know, I didn't have time to go into any panels because my band was vending and performing. So I didn't really get to do any of the rest of the con. On the most recent episode of Transporter Lock, Sabriel and I talked about how I met William Shatner this summer. And it was the oh. same thing. It was just an assembly line. Like, so he was sitting in the captain's chair on a recreation of the TOS bridge. And if mm-hmm. you remember that bridge, it's slightly tiered. So I was on the tier above and behind him. So mm-hmm. he didn't even have to look at me. I just walked in behind him, looked at the camera, <laughs> smiled. They took the shot and I just kept going around the other side of the bridge. Yep. <laughs> And if you wanted to have those more intimate moments you're talking about, they had those as upsells when William Shatner was there. Like, oh, for this much money, you and 25 other people can sit on the bridge and chat with him for an hour. For this much more money, you can have dinner with him. So they definitely gate that access to those who can afford Mm -hmm. it. I got to do something really cool several years ago. Um, I live near Washington, D.C., and the Air and Space Museum that is way far outside the city. It's in Dulles, Virginia. They have this big airplane hangar where they had the Enterprise Space Shuttle and they have the Concorde and tons and tons of planes and helicopters and things. It's a really great time if you ever get a chance to go and usually not nearly as crowded as the one down on the National Mall. But I got to be part of a, and actually no, so that was part of a cool one where I got to see the Discovery Space Shuttle the real one, touch noses with the Enterprise space shuttle because they were moving in the Discovery and moving out the Enterprise. We got to talk to air, you know, uh, various astronauts throughout the day as a social media thing, which was super cool. I also won this a second opportunity to work with the Air and Space Museum, but this one was part of the release of uh, Star Trek Beyond, I believe it was. The, or no, was it? It's the second Star Trek. Into re- Darkness. Into darkness, Star Trek into the darkness, right? That's the one. So part of what we got to do is we got to submit questions to be considered to be asked of several members of the cast of the movie and the current astronauts on the International Space Station, as well as an astronaut who was on the International Space Station and is currently on Earth. So I had my question chosen. By the time I asked it, the people who are currently on the ISS had to log off. So it was just this former astronaut of the ISS. And then it was, um, you know, a couple people from the movie. But I said, which for the people who'd been on the ISS, which Star Trek captain do they think would do the best in the ISS? Ooh, great question. Yeah. Yeah. And the I asked everyone the question. So the people who were actors in the movie were like, oh, I couldn't say because I haven't been there, which is legit. But the astronaut who'd been on the ISS said, you know, uh, and this is going to be one of those things where a name falls out of my head. The captain from the show Enterprise. Scott Bakula. Jonathan Archer. Yes. He said, I think Jonathan Archer, because we actually got to meet Scott Bakula, who came and like did a thing with NASA. So he's the only one I've met. Therefore, I'm going to give it to him, which I'm like, I mean, okay. (laughs) But it was really fun to get to ask that question over a live stream. I didn't actually get to meet any of the actors, but like I got to ask them a question, which was pretty fun. No, I think that's a great question. And it's actually a great answer for reasons other than the one they gave, because when Archer went into space, that was the first Warp 5 shuttle or or spacecraft, and it was still very rough. It was not a, mm. a luxury pleasure ship like Picard's Enterprise was. 
You know, they, I mean, they still had seat belts and there was very little luxury. There are no holodecks. The food replicators were rudimentary at best. I'm not even sure if they existed yet. So it was most similar to what the ISS astronauts have experienced. So Archer would be able to go into the ISS and be like, oh yeah, I get this. I've lived this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not nearly as comfortable as, as the Enterprise or the Cerritos for sure. Yeah. Now see, if there was a Star Trek as opposed to asking me which one my favorite is, which one would I want to live in next generation? Hmm. Mm. I, gosh, that's a really great question. I would probably go with, um, you know, the discovery just because it, and I suppose it's okay to say spoilers because this is a Star Trek podcast, but the idea of being able to jump 900 years in the future while terrifying on some level is so fascinating on another level. That was a really interesting place they took the plot. And, you know, also being able to go to an alternate dimension, which I know they did in other Star Treks, but it got a lot more time and consideration in Discovery. And I just think there's so many cool opportunities. Plus, you know, the Spore Drive has so many great places you could go or very unknown places that wouldn't be practical to travel with regular warp engines. So yeah, I think I'd say discovery. Plus it's, you know, comfy enough, <laughs> even though it's still pretty early on this, you know, they had replicators, they had, you know, 10 forward or the equivalent. So I think I'd be fine. Still, I would find it, although fascinating to see what happens to humanity in 900 years, also somewhat traumatic to lose access to everything and everyone I know. Yeah, that's the terrifying part for yeah. sure. Like, if I can go 900 years into the future and take you and all my friends with me, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and in a way, that happened to a degree for the folks on the Discovery. They at least got to go as a crew and it did mean saying goodbye to their friends and family forever, which is certainly woof. And they had to make the decision really quickly, as I recall. But, and they all, I like that they dealt with the trauma fallout of that in the show and how not everybody adapted well. And I think that's really legit and very interesting. They all had different experiences of what's that like. Yeah. Tilly was finally able to move past her mother's judgment, partly because her mother was no longer alive. I think, I mean, she didn't explicitly mm -hmm. say that, but I think it was a contributing factor. And you're yeah. right. At the end of season two, Michael said she was going to pilot the discovery into the future herself. And everybody else was like, no, we're coming with you. Mm -hmm. Now, Michael would have had a very different experience of the future if she had been by herself. Well, she was for a while, like, cause she ended That's up true. way far away from the discovery and she had to kind of find her way back. So she had that whole arc, which was also really interesting. Yeah. She landed a year before everybody else. Mm -hmm. wow. And she had to find book and then they did some interesting things. Maybe, maybe not legal. <laughs> oh, that is <laughs> so right. Smuggling novels, and things. Yeah. Novels and oh, comic yeah. books. Yeah. Or even just some of those sh shorts that they do sometimes in between the seasons where it's like, here's a couple of quick short stories from Star Trek, which they did with Saru and a couple other folks. You know, they haven't done those in three years. And I think the reason is because Discovery was sort of the flagship show of this new network, CBS All Access. And they didn't have, for people who are signing up to watch Star Trek, okay, you watch your 12 episodes of Discovery and then there's nothing else for another year. So they wanted to give you an incentive to have something to keep watching. So they did the short treks. But now they have Picard and Prodigy and Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds. And I think 
I read somewhere that in the last year, there have been only seven weeks where there was not Star Trek on the air. Wow. Yeah, that would make sense. I was reading a statistic. I can't, of course, remember the exact numbers, but a surprisingly large amount of people stream hop, like streaming service hop throughout the year. Like they'll get Netflix just to see whatever show has a new season that they want. And then they'll end that subscription and then they'll get Paramount Plus so they can see Picard and then they'll end that to go to HBO Max. And that's one way people are saving money so they don't end up spending 60, 70 bucks a month on multiple streaming services. And I wanted to do that with HBO Max and Paramount Plus, but they keep releasing things I want to see. So <laughs> I can't. I'm like, no, but I want to see this. So they've they've figured out the formula to get me hooked and and keep spending money every month on these services, even though there are many of them. Yeah, I have a Trello board where I have one column for each network and a card in each column for the shows I want to watch on that network. So that if I get access to it for a month, I know exactly what to prioritize. So I have not actually started hopping because I feel like I don't watch too much TV. And when I do, there's enough on the few services I already have. But my mother just signed up for Peacock, which is the NBC service that she can continue watching Days of Our Lives, the soap opera she's been watching for 57 years. And Peacock, not only does it allow additional accounts, but... It's also where the new Quantum Leap just premiered. Mm. So I'm going to be borrowing her access to watch that show because my dad and I watched Quantum Leap every week when it first aired. And I'm very intrigued to see where this new show goes. Yeah, I've heard about that. I only saw a couple of episodes back when it was on the air. So I'd be very interested to hear. Let me know what your experience is with the new series. I'd love to hear. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was so into Enterprise when it came out. I remember it was college graduation week and i was at a bar at a party with some friends and enterprise was going to premiere four months later and my friend tc told me who the new captain was going to be who was going to be playing the captain and when i found out it was the actor from quantum leap i think i fell out of my chair like i tilted back and just fell right over because i was so (laughs) excited to see scott bakula back on the air that's awesome. Have you had similar moments of squee with Picard and Lower Decks then? Because they've had plenty of guest stars on each. I don't know that those were necessarily as surprising. Like They do such a good job of advertising it. And unlike when Enterprise premiered, they're social media now. So I often have a gist of the episode before I even go into it. And then mm-hmm. Sabriel and I talking about this stuff on the air on the podcast when there are serial arcs, we're sometimes guessing where it's going to go. And since we have each other to play off, sometimes we come up with ideas that we wouldn't on our own. And more often than not, one of us is right. (laughs) I'm excited to see Carol Kane on Strange New Worlds next season. That sounds awesome. Yes. So she is replacing the chief engineer who passed away, spoiler, on Strange New Mm. Worlds. I'm supposed to say spoiler before I spoil it, not (laughs) after. Oh, well. Uh, but yeah, People are I, concerned with spoilers. They probably shouldn't be listening to a podcast that's covering the most recent episodes of a thing. But it's true. It's true. Yeah, Sabriel <laughs> and I were both very excited about that. Carol Kane has been in a lot of things that I've seen, but the only thing I remember is Princess Bride. Mm. Yeah, that's the closest to my heart for her as well. Yeah. But let's talk about Lower Decks <laughs> now that we're a half yes. an hour into this podcast. <laughs> 
So ostensibly, we're here to talk about season three, episodes four, five, and six, because Sabriel and I reviewed the first three episodes. I belatedly was informed by Sabriel that there are only eight episodes this season, which makes it the shortest season of Lower Deck. So there's only two more after this. But yeah, so we're going to be talking about Room for Growth which was about them trying to get into the dorm by hacking the raffle. Uh, The episode Reflections, where Rutherford learned some things about his own past while Mariner and Boimler were working a recruitment booth. And Hear All, Trust Nothing, which, well, we'll get to that. That's a big episode. (laughs) So, but let's talk about- There's a lot happening. Yeah, it's a lot. So let's talk about Room for Growth. any particular thoughts or any favorite moments from this episode? Because you just recently rewatched the entire season to prepare for this podcast, right? Well, I watched the most recent three episodes in preparation. Okay. Like I rewatched them both, so I've seen them all twice. But yeah, so Room for Growth starts with the captain being possessed by a strange mask called Manuki and is turning the entire uh, Cerritos into their temple, uh, causing the engineers to go and have to like convert sacrificial altars back into, um, you know, various bits of equipment. And it's, uh, it's great. My favorite, they end up getting so stressed and working so long that the captain insists the engineers go to the dove, which is a very, it's a spa for Starfleet people to go and relax. They monitor your stress levels with little cuffs that bright go yellow if you're stressed or green if you're not and uh i just loved the line of course i wrote down the line i didn't write down who says it but just saying you are a bleeping pile of stress and i laughed out loud at that because i'm like yeah that you know that's a big mood for the 2020s so far (laughs) yeah it was nice to see the characters actually be stressed because in a lot of star trek shows they just sort of go with the flow you know, they're mm-hmm. accustomed to these weekly traumas and they just move past them as quickly as they can. But no, these characters are stressed out and they all cope with it in a different way. And I appreciate that not everybody deals with stress the same way. There are different ways to healthfully address stress. Exactly. And so the conflict in that episode being between the engineers who are trying to de-stress by engineering on the down low while they're at this spa trying to figure out, oh, hey, this will make the ship more efficient. We could design, they're designing something in the, the Zen sand garden. They're coming up with schematics. and <laughs> The captain just keeps getting more and more frustrated at them because they're not trying to relax in her mind. They are, they are making themselves more stressed and focusing on work too much but they actually seem to really enjoy that. So it's, it's an interesting way that it deals with that subject. So Enfys, let me ask you, how do you deal with stress? <laughs> it is something that I have been reading up on and considering for quite some time, especially lately. So I read a really interesting book called Sacred Rest that talks about there being multiple different kinds of rest And we tend to think of rest as you're sitting or lying down doing nothing in particular, like you are physically resting. And that is one way you can deal with stress. But there's also things like creative rest, especially if you are in a job that requires a lot of, you know, uh, methodology and there isn't enough 
room to be creative, then doing something creative on the side, even though it is active, can be stress relieving or can be a form of rest. Uh, also by, you know, reading something very different from your required reading for your job or anything can also be restful. So for me, I have a bunch of different tools for dealing with stress and sometimes they work better than others, but I do have a daily meditation practice. I do a daily uh, yoga and stretching and I've been trying more recently to make more time for reading for fun, because I think that's my favorite way to deal with stress is a little escapism into some sort of novel. Hmm. When you said a, a daily meditation, is there an app that you use for that? I have in the past. I'm cur currently not using an app because I'm trying different types of meditation that are ones I have learned that I don't think I need a voice guiding me through, but I used Headspace successfully for about, I think I had a 500 day streak was where I thought, okay, I can probably stop here and see, reevaluate if this is still the right thing for me. And ultimately it was like, okay, I've taken the techniques I've learned from Headspace and from another couple things. And I've varied up my, my daily practice a bit so it doesn't get boring. Yeah, I've tried some of those apps without as much success as you had. Perhaps I just needed more dedication and diligence. I don't know how I deal with stress. I don't feel like I get stressed that often. I'd rather just deal with the thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But sometimes those things are out of my control and I mm -hmm. can't do anything about it. So in those cases, I find just spending time with other people, talking with friends on the phone is a really good help. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a different question from how do I relax, which includes you know, reading novels as you do, playing video games, going for long bike rides. I really enjoy. But actual stress, maybe I need to be, maybe I'm more stressed than I realize and I'm just in denial. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my favorite ways to unwind, especially if it's been a difficult day, is I like to watch... Uh, loading Ready Run, playing horror video games on a show called Let's Nope. And often I'm going back to old episodes I've seen many times, like I'm rewatching their playthrough of the remastered Resident Evil 1 right now, which to me, it just never gets old. And there's something about having that buffer of comedians between me and the game that makes it less scary. Because I used to not like horror at all. I did not like being scared recreationally. But I found that jump scares are actually good for my anxiety because they resolve the stress cycle. It's like, oh, the tiger got me. I can relax now. As opposed to, yeah, it's weird. It's kind of uh, contrary to what one would think. But I do find it actually really relaxing to watch people play horror video games and make fun of them sometimes because some of them are pretty terrible. <laughs> I used to think I didn't like horror movies at all, but then Transport a Lock alumna Susan Arndt had her own horror movie podcast called Long-Legged Beasties that I started mm -hmm. listening to. And it helped me realize that there are, of course, subgenres of horror. Horror is just a broad mm -hmm. category. And I started being able to identify subgenres that I actually do like. And that requires some experimentation where I saw horror movies that I would prefer to not have seen. Mm -hmm. um, it was a great way to discover new genres that I didn't realize that I liked. Yeah, same. Like, I'm not into slasher movies. I'm not into torture porn. Uh, but I do like ones that are rooted in a really good mystery or a survival kind of context. Like... Um, the quiet, a quiet place. 
that is one of the ones I love. Horror movie. Yeah. Yes. No, because it's it's built around more of like a puzzle of how do we survive in this context. I think it's really interesting. And yeah. yeah, there are some games that kind of explore in that same way. There's a lot of your traditional haunted house games, but those are usually mysteries you're trying to solve. Like what happened here? Why is it haunted? Mm-hmm. The two things I liked about A Quiet Place are, A, the villain is not a human. So mm-hmm. movies like Saw, for example, yeah, not I my can't. jam. Nope. Nope. And second of all, it has a relatively satisfying ending. Yeah. And the you sequel know, did too. Yeah, yeah, and I'm told that it's actually part of a trilogy, so I'm looking forward to the next movie in the series. Yeah, yeah. I I have trouble seeing um, any kind of body horror. I really try to avoid. That's that's not something I enjoy. But yeah, ones that are rooted in mystery. And I should have thought of this too, is because Aliens has been one of my favorite movies for my entire adult life, and I will rewatch that as many times. It is technically a horror film. But it's also an action film and a mystery film, and it's got all these other components to it. And yes, there is some body horror with it, but it's not to the level where I get really squicked out. Do I recall that the first Alien movie is more of a horror and the second Aliens movie is more of an action movie? Yeah, definitely. Uh, The first one is definitely more standard horror, and everything after that is pretty much an action movie. But, you know, there's horror elements because there's, again, a non-human villain that doesn't operate in the way that humans do. And they just have to figure out how to deal with that. Mm. Yeah. And one of the horrors that they show in lower decks is all these poor lower deck folks have to share room space with so many other people. And I feel really bad for them because it's like college roommate style bunk beds where no one really has any privacy and I'm like, oh, that would be miserable for long starship journeys, especially Voyager. I'm like, if they had people in bunk beds in the same room for seven years who never knew if they'd be able to get home, like they didn't promote Harry Kim until like the last season. And I'm just like, people stuck on the lower decks, that would be awful to share those bunk spaces. Yeah, there's the so little and- privacy, like not even a curtain that you can pull across your no. bunk. Yeah, I mean, and there's interesting repeated, uh, like there's a running joke in this one that I don't know if they're going to do something with, but the same dude in a short towel walked past at the beginning of two of the three episodes that we watched, and they made a comment about it in Room for Growth, and then he was there again in uh, in the second episode, the one after that. And I'm like, it's just such a little tiny moment, but seeing him for a second time, I'm like, hey, yeah, why is that happening? So I wonder if that's going to be a thing, because it's not a character we're familiar with. And I wonder if that's going to be involved in the season ender in some weird way. It'd be funny if he was different a little bit every time, like he has more and more apparel, like he's just slowly getting dressed over the course of the season. (laughs) So far, it's just the towel. And I'd have to rewatch all of them to see if it's more than... Two episodes, but definitely for two of these, there's dude in tiny short towel walking by. But yeah, it's one of those things like, man, you'd have to, do they have like the group shower situation, like at camp? Like, uh, there's a lot of, hmm, I wonder how this works for other Star Trek shows because we never see those characters. We only see ones with quarters of their own. 
And I would hope that they would realize that far in the future. There are enough introverts in the world who will not function well constantly being around people and maybe set up space to accommodate people in individual bunks. Have we had many introverted Star Trek characters? Because they all require like daily interaction with your crew, which of course introverts are capable of, but we don't often get to see their downtime. So we don't really know how they behave outside of those forced work interactions. That's a good question. I feel like Rutherford is probably an introvert who has learned to function in a more extroverted way because he really likes to focus on a project and really likes to just, you know, go with that for a long time. And I think he likes having his friends around. He definitely likes having Tendi around and likes to work as a team to solve a thing. But I think he's also very comfortable on his own, probably. That's true. And possibly Tendi as well. Really? You think so? Yeah, I think Tendi is probably an introvert in that she probably functions better with, you know, one or two close friends and doesn't seem to have like a wide network on the ship of people she hangs with. She's sweet, she's friendly and polite, but I think she really likes having like one or two or three people she can depend on and is just trying to, especially seeing after the most recent episode where she talks about her parents and what she was raised to be. She's trying to be the opposite of what she was raised, like in the pirate culture of the Orions. So I think part of that is withdrawing into herself a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to see her and her crewmates go on a little adventure in this episode through the underbelly of the ship, uh, which mm-hmm. I enjoy being able to see other parts of the ship that we don't normally have access to. It reminded me a little bit of Enterprise, because in Enterprise, there was this uh, one, I forget exactly what room it was, maybe it was near the engine, but it was where the gravity on the ceiling is pulling that way and the gravity on the floor is pulling that way. So if you stand right in the middle of the room, you're you're actually floating. And Mm. I feel like we got to see some of that in this episode. So it was fun to see them trying to game the raffle and also go up against that awful Delta shift. Ugh. Delta shift. Yeah. I I really enjoyed the anti-grav chamber part. Like Boimler saying, I'm anti-grav boy, protector of the lower decks was so adorable. I laughed at that line and just all the, we're used to seeing the pristine sort of hallways and bridge and everything like that. We don't see the dirty parts as much. So seeing like underneath the hydroponics bay and there's these roots of plants that are not necessarily safe for humans to be around and the oxygen levels are not as good. It was really neat to see them explore all of that stuff and to see Boimler and uh, Mariner get really surprisingly high (laughs) in the environment without enough oxygen around the interesting plant. That was really funny. I was surprised that such a room exists without more precautions, but I did enjoy that. What was it? Tendi had to hatch Mariner out of her egg. Yes. I'm sorry. I made you hatch. It was just so warm. <laughs> I felt bad so for Mariner because I'm like, yeah, I want to be in a small, soft, warm place, but no. <laughs> oh, well. What if they've got all this space? Why aren't they using more of it for quarters for the lower decks people? (laughs) Right? You know, maybe it's all these big empty spaces. Maybe make the bottom of hydroponics not lethal and put some beds in there. Exactly. You know, people might enjoy that. Call it glamping. (laughs) Star Trek glamping. I can see it. That's coming next. That's got to be a new series. I'll watch it. 
I'll watch anything with the name Star Trek on it, or even if it doesn't, like Enterprise. Uh, one last comment from me on this episode. You were talking about the uh, mask takeover at the beginning. I'd completely forgotten that. And that is mm-hmm. such a huge parody of the TNG season seven episode, Masks, where exactly that happened. And they strongly imply in this episode, they're like, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. There are always evil masks taking people over. Stop putting on masks. Like, right? like yeah. I think Mariner is so exasperated because she's clearly seen this many times. And even though it's her mother who is possessed, it's like, uh, another stop putting on ancient masks, people. Like, everyone should know this. It's probably in some protocol book somewhere. You would think, right. It's like the line from Buffy about... Well, it, there was the episode of Buffy early on with, oh, do you like my mask? Isn't it lovely? It raises the dead. Americans. It's one of my favorite Giles lines. He's just like ranting about stupid American putting on the ancient mask and causing all kinds of havoc. It's definitely a trope within sci-fi and fantasy shows. You know, there are a lot of shows that I've seen through in their entirety only once. Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, Voyager. Buffy is one of them. So I've seen every single episode of Buffy, but I don't have the detail for it that a lot of people do because they've rewatched mm. it. TNG, I've watched multiple times, but any other show, I'm like, uh, I've commented to Sabriel on this show how sometimes, I don't know why, I remember exact lines from Enterprise. That I seem to recall in vivid detail, but Buffy, I remember Giles, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> <laughs> That that particular line escapes me. Uh, clearly, I I need to go back and see if Joss Whedon's form of feminism has aged well. I'm told it hasn't. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, not necessarily. No. Maybe I shouldn't rewatch. There's it still some. I don't know. There's some good ones. Uh, for me, it's like if I'm going to rewatch a series, I kind of want to go through best of at this point, where there are people curate lists of like if you want to just see the main plot arc from this season, just watch these episodes. And that seems like a possible option for you. Or if you just want to see the best Buffy episodes, because you already know what the plot arcs are. Uh, There's a couple of really, my favorites are Hush and Band Candy. Band Candy was so great. And Armin Sherman, who guests on the third episode, which we haven't talked about yet, but the principal from Buffy season three, uh, or what, oh, season two, season two principal, who played Quark on Deep Space Nine. he is fantastic because band candy episode, all the adults are buying, you know, fundraiser candy from the kids and the fundraiser candy turns adults into mentally teenagers. And they all start having like responsibility shirking behavior and all of this and taking risks and uh, seeing how the principal, Armin Shearman, um, he just is like the excited kid that nobody wants to hang out with, but he's trying to like insert himself into every little click and thinks everyone's his best friend. So it's Aww. really adorable. <laughs> That's a good one to watch again. Let's talk about but yeah. the Lower Decks episode Reflections. The two plots here being Rutherford learns something about himself and Mariner and Boimler work a Starfleet recruitment booth. I loved this episode because... I love when Lower Decks picks up on things that, of course, these things exist in Starfleet culture, but no Star Trek has examined them before, like a recruitment booth at a fair, like an employer fair. 
for Starfleet makes all the sense in the world, especially because it's loosely based on the U.S. military. And they always have, you know, recruitment booths at the county fair and everything else. So I I loved the B-plot on this one of Boimler and Mariner trying to sell people on Starfleet and getting made fun of and Boimler just snapping. But the, the pl- A-plot with Rutherford finding out he's suppressed or forgotten a huge chunk of him, his personality and his life, and that it's not necessarily his fault, definitely hints at some more interesting episodes to come about that. Yeah, this was hinted at originally in the season two finale, and I'm glad to see that they are drawing it out because the season two finale also ended with the captain getting arrested, which was very Mm -hmm. abruptly resolved in the season premiere of the third season. And so that seems to be lower decks modus operandi where they're just like, let's bring something up and solve it really quick because it's funny that way. Whereas with Rutherford, (laughs) there's actually something deeper here and they're taking their time across multiple seasons to figure it out. We're probably not going to find out what it is this season. They've already started recording the fourth season, which is going to be 10 episodes. So we know that there's going to be more opportunities to resolve this. Unlike say the character of book on Firefly, where they hinted at something and only had half a season to resolve it, and they never did. With Lower Decks, yeah. we actually will get that time. Apparently, the book story arc happened in the comics. I read those comics. So if you do want comics. to go back and see, yeah. I actually, my understanding. I preferred, once I found out his backstory, I preferred the mystery. Mm, yeah. So I, I, I would recommend not reading the comics. Not because they're bad, just because they didn't live up to expectations. Weren't they Dark Horse? I have such a problem with how Dark Horse handles TV property comics. I was deeply disappointed in all of the Buffy comics, except for there was a little tiny arc that was sort of Buffy season eight that kind of worked and it kind of didn't. But like the art style varies wildly and is not like really great. I think some of the Star Trek comics as well were just not, it didn't really look like the series. Some of them did, but yeah, I, I don't love how a lot of comics are handled based on TV shows. Though the Lower Decks comic is pretty good. Uh, episode ha- or issue one has come out, two is due, uh, I think, in a week and a half from oh. when we're recording this. I have not seen any of the Lower Decks comics yet. You recommend them? Yep. Um, Ryan North, who writes them, was the writer for The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which is my favorite comic series of all time, and is a perfect voice for Lower Decks. He has that same level of snarky, self-parody humor, and and yeah, works quite well. And they set up some interesting story arcs. It's going to be a three-issue series, I think. So um, yeah, the second one comes out October 12th. Cool. I'll have to add that to my list. Thank you. Yeah. Some of the moments I loved at the recruitment booth were them saying like, oh yeah, join Starfleet and get to be a transport chief in a windowless room for seven years. Yeah. Why do you got to go beat up on O'Brien? Do you want to be assimilated? Because they're always getting assimilated by the Borg. I hope you want to have red, uh, black tubing coming out of places and just, yeah, easy to scare people off Starfleet. Um, I, I loved a couple of my favorite moments for this with the Rutherford story arc. I loved that he was able to use his imagination to create a ship to win a race against his former self. And he created his friends within that ship to help him. And I was just, oh, like that's such a great, Rutherford is, 
it's a tie between Rutherford and Tendi for my favorite character on this show. They're both so good. And seeing that just pure cinnamon roll moment of just, <laughs> sorry, the onion headline of cinnamon roll too good, too pure for this world. Uh, he is a cinnamon roll. He is too good, too pure. And seeing him win with the power of friends and power of friendship just uh, it touches my heart. But yeah. equally, I enjoyed seeing Boimler lose himself and go off on a fury tangent while running the booth for the recruitment booth when we all thought Mariner would be the one who would lose herself and go off. But Boimler just reading the riot act to everyone else who was there, like with all these deep references to like, stop trapping people inside of games and... um you know, I failed the Kobayashi Maru 17 times. The doctor didn't spend seven years in the Delta Quadrant for you to question his agency. I think that was my favorite because <laughs> I loved Voyager. Um, and like someone actually saying, no, I, I would like to join Starfleet. If I get confidence like that, he just told a Ferengi to bleep, 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 bleep. Like it's the long sentence bleeped out. <laughs> I laughed so hard seeing that. It was super funny. Yeah, I loved the references. I got the one about the doctor and ultimately Commander Ransom approved of this approach. Yeah, that was also surprising. And I think that's one of the things that the command cannot do is like read the riot act to folks who have made life harder for Starfleet. And I think they just lived a little vicariously through Boimler in that moment. They're like, yeah, you're going to have to spend a night in the brig, but you know, no big deal. (laughs) His friends got to hang out with him. Of course, if Mariner had done the same thing, she would have been in a lot of trouble. It, it was only okay because Boimler did it. Right, exactly. There's a short leech on Mariner this season, and it's kind of interesting to see how she's coping with it. Although in the next episode, her coping mechanisms kind of revert to her usual style, and we'll see what the fallout, if any, from that is, because she ends up stunning all of her girlfriend Jennifer's friends, basically in a fit of peak. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you, though, before we move on about Rutherford, do you have any theories as to why somebody wiped his memory? Hmm. I'm more curious about who wiped his memory than the, I mean, the why will come with that. But it sounds like he was part of some not above board uh, experiment, possibly within Starfleet, probably within Starfleet, if they keep him there because they want to keep tabs on him. But yeah, I don't really have any suspicions as to who or they they show them very blurry and the voices didn't ring a bell. So it'll be interesting. How about you? I don't think they've given us anything. I think it's going to be something completely new. I don't think it's going to be a reference to some other deep Star Trek fact or lore. Uh, Gosh. I mean, they made it sound like the, the young punk Rutherford was building racing ships like pod racers from star Wars or something. And one of his (laughs) ships exploded. And that all seems like sensible. That is a self-contained story to me. Like he was in an accident. They had to do some cybernetics to repair him. So where do these other characters, these potential admirals come in? Like what were these racing ships being built for or by whom or with whom? And why would an admiral be involved in, races i don't get it there's a lot we're not being told here which is fine i'm i'm not looking for answers yet i as i said i like the way they're stringing it along but yeah i don't think we have enough to go on at all right now no but i do like the hinting to it you know there are people in starfleet who are not 
super ethical. You know, it was part of what I enjoyed about Discovery is like, oh, this is a different kind of captain. So who is this admiral who is doing something really shady uh, that involves Rutherford? It's pretty fascinating. It could be something to do with Section 31. Mm, that would make sense. Which once you have finished watching Deep Space Nine, and I know Section 31 has been in other series, but you'll really appreciate it more after DS9 because that's the show that invented Section 31. Oh, interesting. Because then it shows up in Discovery. So, hmm. And even a little bit in Enterprise. Yes. Is this, yeah, the spinoff show is still happening, right? From what I hear, yeah. I think they want to end one Star Trek series at this point because they have so many before starting another one. And Mm -hmm. the third and final season of Picard is right around the corner. So Mm -hmm. maybe once Picard is done, I think then they'll give Michelle Yeoh her show. Yeah. I'm excited for that one. I will watch Michelle Yeoh in just about anything. Like her character, I think, was drawn out a little too long in Discovery. Like I think they could have wrapped up that story arc a little sooner. But she's so fun to watch. She's really good at that character. I've been a fan of hers since I saw Goldeneye in the theater many, many years ago. Not Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies was the one where she was one of the Bond girls. Uh, There's a big motorcycle chase with her. I'll have to go rewatch that because... I, for a lot of people, kind of like, who's your doctor? Who your, who's your bond? Mm-hmm. Often is the same question as who was your first bond. And so for me, it's mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan. I thought he was great. And I loved GoldenEye, the movie, and the N64 game. Uh, I was very bad at the N64 game. So I, didn't, I was bad at the N64. I did not like the controller layout at all. And I was just generally terrible at it. But um, there is a podcast from... Loading Ready Run, who I mentioned before, they do a podcast called From Rewatch with Love, where two of them who love James Bond rewatch every single James Bond movie in order and then have a podcast dissecting it. And the podcasts are longer than the movies. So they're usually two and a half, three hours long, but they're so interesting and entertaining and they get into some of the behind the scenes. So that podcast, which is one of the few podcasts I will listen to because it helps me fall asleep because it's kind of entertaining, but also I don't feel bad falling asleep because I'm not going to really miss much. Um, But they it inspired me and my partner to watch all the James Bond movies during the the lockdown part of the pandemic. And so, yeah, I have a lot of James Bond opinions that are probably not for this podcast, but, uh, but yeah, I still appreciate Pierce Brosnan and Goldeneye holds up reasonably well. There's some parts of it that seem pretty dated now, but I still liked Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies. Well, maybe you and your partner need to launch a James Bond podcast. <laughs> With all the extra time I have. <laughs> right. Although I will say, you will get another chance, if you didn't know, to play Goldeneye when it comes to the Switch with online play very soon. I would probably also not be good at that. Like Generally, first-person <laughs> shooters are not my axe. I am not good at them, um, and I don't find them super fun. But, but maybe. Yeah, no, same here. I've tried the Halo games. Not my jam. Uh, I like Metroid mm-hmm. Prime because even though it's first-person, I wouldn't call it a shooter. It's a different genre mm. with the same perspective, but yeah. that's a tangent. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, one of the reasons I read that the Section 31 series has not started yet is due to Michelle Yeoh's revitalized film career. Ah, uh, since Everything Everywhere All at Once movie? Yeah. Well, she did that. She was in the Marvel movie Shang-Chi. She mm-hmm. was in Crazy Rich Asians. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other movies, but that's three big movies in three or four years. Television sometimes gets a bad rap in Hollywood. It's like where Hollywood actors go to die. 
Mm. And so or they never graduate to film. Exactly. I don't, I mean, the facts may support that. I don't agree with the judgment that's inherent in it, but if there are those who do feel that way, then I can see why she would rather be doing movies instead of Star Trek right now. They're probably more profitable for less work. I would imagine, you know, spend eight to 16 weeks shooting a film and you get millions versus you spend many, many, many hours shooting a season of television. And, but now that they're shorter seasons, maybe it's less so, but it seems like television's turning out a full length movie every week and for these shorter seasons. So it's like the same amount of entertainment just condensed. Are you watching Rings of Power? I've seen the first episode. Just thinking about the length and production quality of that show. It is like a movie every week, which is also one of the reasons why it's the most expensive TV show ever made. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. The ones I've really gotten into, especially circling back to our horror conversation is Netflix has three series by the same director writer, um, Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor and Midnight Mass. They're all the same, a lot of the same actors through them. And they're really, really compelling, definitely in that more mystery style of horror. Uh, but yeah, I mean, each episode is like a full length movie and there's 10 episodes <coughs> in a season. So you end up watching like 10 movies to see the whole plot, but they're able to really weave an interesting, complex narrative that way. Hmm. I will keep those in mind. Let's move on to the third and final episode. We were talking about what's more profitable for actors and profit is a big theme. <laughs> In the episode, Here All Trust Nothing, which is one of the rules of acquisition. The USS Cerritos goes to Deep Space Nine, which we, as television viewers, have not seen new video content of since the show went off the air in 1999, so 23 years ago. But this episode is set only seven years after that in Star Trek time. Right. I was surprised to see them go to DS9 because I guess I was conscious of it being roughly a little bit after uh, Star Trek The Next Generation in terms of what time frame the Cerritos is in. And also a little bit after Voyager, definitely implied from that second episode, like the doctor didn't spend seven years in the, Alpha, in the Delta Quadrant for you to question his agency. But DS9 is still there and it's still operational and there's still some of the same people there it was kind of surprising to me, but a delightful surprise. Yeah, a lot of the one of the things I loved about DS9 was that it sort of had a rotating cast. There were people who came and went and became regulars or guest recurring actors, and not all those characters were around by the season finale, so mm -hmm. or a series finale. So I expected that I already knew basically which characters would not be showing up, and so that left right. them with a rather small pool to choose from. They got Kira and Quark. Uh, which was fantastic, the original actors. And Armin Shimmerman did confirm that he wore the teeth to record those lines. Yep, that was my biggest question after that episode. I turned to my partner and said, I wonder if he had to wear the mouse pr mouth prosthetic, well, that's hard to say, mouth prosthetic <laughs> to, to do the voice correctly because, you know, Cork has those teeth and, and there's a lot of facial makeup and they didn't have to do the whole face, but having... The teeth in, I'm sure, was critical for getting the voice to be the same. But it's also 23 years later for that actor whose voice may have changed in that time. Plus, as someone pointed out, you know, it's a different microphone setup than they would have had for the show. 
he's right up on a mic doing voiceover work versus boom mics being used for the uh, the series. Yeah, in the Slack channel you and I were participating in, somebody pointed out that we've never heard Quark's voice from three inches away before. Right, exactly. Unless they did ADR for the show, which they may have. <laughs> but they'd want to make it sound the same. Audio dynamic range? Um, when they have to re-loop over uh, lines that they said because there's some problem with how it came through in the film, so they record them and lip-sync sort of to their own lip sync later. Um, gotcha. I think it's called ADR. Cool. But yeah, I, I loved this episode. <laughs> Why is that? Especially given that you haven't seen all of DS9. I haven't, but it was a lot more references to an era I had a little bit more familiarity with, I guess. So I was getting more of the jokes, but it also, they had so much fun with this setting, seeing Rutherford and Tendi uh, just get super excited about being on DS9 because of all the history, like Rutherford has this, I want to dangle my feet off the upper ring, like in the hollow novels, you know, like they have clearly a lot of love and excitement around this specific place. Whereas, um, the security chief calls it a tacky Cardassian fascist eyesore early on. Uh, you know, there's a lot of love for the location and the writers clearly have a lot of love for DS9 and that came out through the episode. So I didn't get every reference and I'm not super caught up on the Dominion War, but it's uh, it was really fun to watch and to see all the characters from Cerritos and how they reacted to being at DS9. Like, Mariner, I don't think had any, wasn't super excited because she's probably been there a bunch of times. So she ended up hanging out with her girlfriend and her friends. But, you know, Rutherford is just like starry eyed through the whole thing. And it's so cute. Yeah, he is clearly a stand in for us, the viewers. I have to Mm -hmm. wonder from an in-universe perspective, what is it about Deep Space Nine that makes him so excited? Just that it was on the forefront of the Dominion War? That's not important to know, but... I did love all the references. Like even he said, I need to tone it down a bit. Don't I? (laughs) Yeah. I love that line. (laughs) But you're in food court. I should tone it down. (laughs) (laughs) And and there's chief O'Brien's dartboard. Yep. The actor who voices Rutherford, whose name escapes me at the moment, but has some of the best line reads in the whole series, Uh, (laughs) not just in this episode, but one that I about fell off my chair laughing at was, um, but the episode where they found the Ferengi trying to, um, they're working with the endangered Mugatu species and like harvesting parts of them and like keeping them contained. And the way they get out of it is Boimler and Rutherford pitching an idea of forming a zoo for them instead that's more friendly. But Rutherford and Boimler have this tiny little moment where Boimler is like, we have all the weapons we need to defeat that right here and taps his temple. And Rutherford just goes, our skin, like really cheerfully, like, of course. And Boimler's like, uh, no, our brains, but that line, our skin just destroyed me. And I still laugh every time I see it. He's so good. The timings are so perfect. Well, now when I rewatch that episode, I'm going to laugh at you laughing at it. <laughs> there you go. Um, what I love about this episode too, is right at the beginning, uh, that they're getting the nice pan around shot because every other Star Trek series, the opening credits were like the ship going places, but DS nine, it's like, well, it's just kind of pan around it a whole bunch. And so they're like, Oh, you've got to buy us some time. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, just 
circle around and pretend we're admiring the pylons. And so they do that for a little bit like, uh, yep, just keep circling. <laughs> yeah, the theme song that actually was... ends and they're like, now yeah. what? So they just yeah, restart the one. theme song. Just just keep circling. That was so good. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that they would go into the wormhole because that's such a big part of Deep Space Nine. Mm. But that that didn't happen because we got to see Tendi embrace some of her Orion heritage. Yes, and in such an interesting way because she meets another Orion who I think might be the only other Orion we've seen on the series. Check me on that, but I think uh, at that's least the, the only one. one in Starfleet. Yeah, yeah. So he is the most annoying like person to Tendi because he's way overdoing the whole, oh, I'm Orion, we're all pirates, we do this, eh, eh, like trying to bond with Tendi, but it's having the opposite effect. She's just annoyed by him because she's trying to reject most of her heritage and what her parents did, which was pirating. She's like, it's not cool, I'm not proud of this. But then she is able to do the most badass capture of the ship that's about to go into a wormhole and get it to actually stop with uh you know this one sort of multi-tool sort of situation it's like wow she did that with the wine opener she's able to like her acrobatics and her fighting ability have not been super highlighted in the series to this point but felt completely believable as she revealed more of her backstory in this one. And it was really fun to see that. That's why I chose the the rank and department for Ensign and Science, because I wanted to do it in honor of Tendi. <laughs> she is fantastic. And it seems like she can do pretty much anything she sets her mind to, which is something that uh, Dr. Ta'ana mentioned last season, where mm. like, what are you doing in sick bay addressing phaser burns? You should be on the bridge. And she's like, "Oh my god, yes, I love that." Just like Jadzia Dax, and so we get to, and so we get to see even more things she's capable of. I hope that there aren't people out there who are accusing her of being a Mary Sue, because mm-hmm. she does have crises of confidence. There are things that she can't do or doesn't realize she can do. But one of the things I liked about this episode was, I almost feel like Tendi is at her best when she's angry. And the only two times I've seen that are this episode and the season two finale where they're in the, uh, I I forget what it's called, the uh, Cetaceous Ops. And somebody Mm -hmm. has to dive down and uh, unlock one of the clamps. And Mariner's like, I need to get back to the bridge and talk to my mom because that's my family. And Tendi just really angrily grabs her and says, we're your family. Yeah. Like, Like Tendi did not hesitate to just express herself to someone who might not be willing to listen and that helps her get through it helps her be heard which was something else we saw earlier in this season where she was hesitant to get the captain's attention but when she has that confidence whether it's coming from anger or somewhere else she's really an effective communicator and she gets stuff done like we saw here absolutely yeah, she was just really fun to watch. I, I'm here for Pirate Tendi in the same way I was here for Captain Killy in Discovery, <laughs> the, the Mirror Ver- Universe version of Tilly, who is just this, you know, absolutely bloodthirsty, uh, no holds barred kind of pirate. It was interesting seeing that other side of Tilly and knowing there's something in her that could be like that in her uh, non Mirror Universe counterpart. Uh, yeah. Yeah, one of the things I loved also was how the Cerritos captain acted as soon as she met Quark. 
like Quark is trying to schmooze or says, you look radiant, Captain. She just goes, uh, pass. <laughs> like, <laughs> like not even going to pretend. Just nope, nope, get away. <laughs> not interested. Yeah, I remember in the Voyager premiere, they launched the Voyager from Deep Space Nine and Harry Kim has an interaction with Quark and Quark is trying to sell Harry Kim stuff and Harry Kim's like, uh-uh, no thanks. We, I was told about you, your kind in Starfleet Academy. And Quark is like, <laughs> what? Are you being taught racist stereotypes in Starfleet Academy? I want the name of your instructor. <laughs> Whereas in this episode, Mariner's just like, no, I know who you are, Quark. And you know, one of the things that I pulled up on YouTube after watching this episode, there was in the seventh season of Next Generation, the episode Firstborn, where Commander Riker calls up Quark on the view screen on the bridge, and they have an interaction together. <laughs> and, and it's so fun to see these characters that don't normally interact talk to each other. So we got some of that in this episode where, like, of course, Shax, the Bajoran security guard, and Colonel Kira Norris know each other from the occupation. Of course, they have all these stories about who owes who how many times they saved each other's <laughs> lives. I just love that there's immediately that history there. Yeah, that dynamic was fun too. Uh, I also, as we talked about in our Slack channel about this episode, so many good Quark screams in this episode. Uh, particularly my favorite is, you know, at the end when Captain Freeman says, well, you're happier to be poor than in prison, aren't you? Like he just screams, no, it's like, you don't know anything about Quark. Uh, But then he steals a latinum tooth because rule of acquisition at the very end, which was just a beautiful way to end the episode. 76% of his profits. Did I get that number right? Yeah. That (laughs) seems excessive. That's extortionistic. Yeah. Like that is not... Not good. Although I also loved seeing Boimler win at Dabo so much that like they had to, they had a bit of a crisis with fulfilling his, his gambling habit and and the money he'd won. So they offer him a gift certificate and he's so thrilled because he's like, we don't use money in Starfleet anyway. This is great. And he gets, he walks across the screen wearing about 16 different Star Trek DS9 fanboy things like Ferengi ears and, and stuff. And it's super funny. Well, the way he won all that Latinum was with Triple Down Dabo. And the only other person Mm. known to have won Triple Down Dabo at Quark's was Commander Riker. And they didn't have (laughs) enough Latinum to honor his win. So they gave him vouchers instead. So there's precedent for this. That's what Boimler gets. Yeah. You win Triple Down Dabo, you get Quark bucks. And and Boimler's little coin purse. It's just adorable. It fits the character so well. It's a It's a clutch. Get it right. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, Boimler was not featured heavily in this episode, but he had some fantastic moments in Quarks. Yeah, I enjoyed the scenes in Quarks. I, the alien race that they were negotiating with, apparently did show up on one episode of Deep Space Nine. I don't remember them. I found it questionable that they accused him of stealing their technology because, you know, in an open market. There are lots of legitimate ways to get technology that you didn't invent. So the Mm -hmm. fact that they would immediately leap to arresting him, I found questionable. But who knows how laws work in the future? And, you know, they're from a different quadrant and their laws may work very differently as well. Their intellectual property rights may be quite different than the ones in Starfleet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were 
a lot of references to Deep Space Nine, of course, in this episode. I'm looking at Memory Alpha. They mentioned Garrick the Tailor, although not by name. They just like, oh, it's a tailor shop. Uh, Jake I would have Sisko. loved to have seen Garrick. <laughs> Me too. And Bashir. Come on, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mentioned Jake Sisko, how Rutherford wanted to have a heart-to-heart with a junior reporter while Dangley is yeah. over the promenade. Uh, <laughs> Miles is dartboard. And they also said, I think it was Mariner who said, like, oh, if you didn't have me to show you around, you'd probably get lost in the mirror universe with Smiley. Smiley being the mirror universe <laughs> yep. of Miles O'Brien. I have um, seen that. I've seen the mirror universe episodes of DS9. Oh, cool. Uh, but as, as you said, Mariner was not on Deep Space Nine because she was having her own little salon with Jennifer's <laughs> girlfriends. Yes, who seem like a lot. <laughs> And and how Jennifer was more excited to have Mariner tear them a new one than to play nice with them, I thought was a fun little character development moment or a character reveal of the girlfriend. Uh, it was really, it was fun. Like, why are these people Jennifer's friends if she finds them so intolerable? Yeah, I can see it because we all sometimes have friends from way back especially we've noticed this on Facebook, like people we used to be friends with a long time ago, who we now just have this tangential relationship with can sometimes turn into uh, people we don't like over time. And it's awkward sometimes to distance yourself from that. So that's kind of what I felt was going on here with Jennifer. It's just, Hmm. you know, these were the friends from college or whatever that eh, we're not really the same anymore, but I should at least see them while I'm there. Are you enjoying the progression of Mariner's and Jennifer's relationship? I am. And I'm glad that they're not making it like a major focal point either because romance arcs on Star Trek are rarely deeply interesting. I'm still salty to this day about Paris and Bellana from Voyager. Cause there's this one episode where it's clear he is neglectful and emotionally abusive, but everyone she talks to is like, no, stay with him because love is more important. Or like, you love him. That's all that matters. And I was just like, no, get away from him. Bellana. you deserve so much better. There is a Facebook group uh, called Tom Paris is a garbage. And <laughs> yeah, I have, I have feelings about that whole arc. So I'm glad when they don't dwell over much on romances in Star Trek. And I think they're using it just enough in this season where it doesn't get annoying or intolerable. And it's cool to see more queer relationships on Star Trek as well. One of the best Star Treks for relationships, in my opinion, was Deep Space Nine. There were Mm -hmm. quite a few on there that granted were heteronormative, but seemed natural and not forced like perhaps Bellana and Paris were. Mm hmm. So that might yeah. be something you, you can look forward to when you do finally sit down to watch all of DS9. I mean, I'm going to watch it mainly for the love story of Bashir and Garak, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think that's that's what's going to keep me watching it because their initial meeting is so funny. And somebody on Twitter set it to the Wii Shop music I remember and that. put all these little captions. Oh, it's so good. And and seeing that the actors really latch on to the whole, you know, they were clearly a coded gay couple on the show. They just couldn't actually make it that. And they have performed romantic fanfic of the two characters on Zoom uh, for people. Like they embrace that. And the actor who played Garrick has said, no, I was playing this a hundred percent 
as a queer love story. Like whatever they told me to do is just, nope, that's exactly how I'm playing this. He is hitting on Bashir. Bashir doesn't know what to do with it, and but is clearly intrigued. They have a whole James Bond episode of the two of them. That's just hysterical. So yeah, yeah. Yep. And they talk about that in the DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind. Hmm. I I think I got most interested in it and getting back into DS9 from uh, Matt Baum's uh, Queer Culture, Culture Cruise uh, video podcast or vodcast or show on YouTube where he had a whole episode about Deep Space Nine and sort of the queerness or the resistance to queerness on that show. Yeah, he, Matt, has actually been on my Polygamer podcast a couple of times. He's a great guy. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really impressed with his work. I really like his show on YouTube. He does awesome stuff and makes very engaging content. Well, fun. You're talking about relationships on DS9 not feeling so forced. Interestingly, the soap opera-ness of the show is what turned me off when I was first watching it when it came out. Is I just felt it was way too much of a soap opera. There's way too much, um, I guess in some genres you'd call it courtly intrigue, but it's just like, I don't know, it didn't work for me, but I was in my teens then, and maybe I would appreciate it more now than I did then. I don't know. I remember people saying that it was like days of our lives in space when it first started. <laughs> I, I think, you know, like any Star Trek, the first couple of seasons were a little rough. Well, like any Star Trek except Strange New Worlds. Uh, Strange New Worlds came out swinging. Actually, Discovery came out swinging as far as I'm concerned, too. I thought it was strong right from the get-go. But but yeah. But one back in the 90s, I mentioned earlier that my mom watches Days of Our Lives. I used to as well. And there was one episode in the 90s where this one of the main characters just uh I think he was like Hungarian or something. And one day he's just like, Oh, here's by the way, my cousin is in town visiting. And the cousin showed up on that one episode in like one scene and never again. I don't even know why he was there, but I immediately recognized, even without all the makeup, it was Andrew J. Robinson who plays Garrick. Oh, awesome. Because he has this way of like opening his eyes really wide and having this smirk on his face. Like he knows Mm -hmm. something that you don't, which is perfect for the tailor. And I recognized mm-hmm. him immediately without his makeup. I was like, oh my gosh. And that actually reminds me of another time in the early 2000s, I was working at GameStop. And one day somebody came in to buy a game, gave me his credit card. I looked at the name on it. It was Andrew J. Robinson. And I was like, like Garrick from Deep Space Nine? He's like, not the same one. And I don't get that too often, actually. So kudos to you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So... I loved that Mariner just went whole hog on shooting all of Jennifer's friends. I thought that was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've been in a position where I've met the friends of the person I'm dating and was really underwhelmed. And so I think we can, a lot of us can relate to that experience. Just like, oh, wow, I'm dating this person who has friends like this? Questioning it. So yeah, I, I like that she was trying to be on her best behavior and how hard that was. But then yeah, just stunning everyone. I didn't understand why she felt they needed to stun themselves at the end. Although it was very cute that they kiss while they're stunning themselves. I'm like, you know, they're going to wake up and no Mariner stunned them. That's not going to be in question here. So I don't know what advantage there is to stunning yourselves, but okay. <laughs> it was cute. 
the way they framed it in the show was almost like they were trying to avoid culpability by making them look just as much a victim as anybody else. But I think now that now in hindsight, what it was is we're stunning people in order to save air. Shouldn't we participate in that as well? Is it more, is air mm. more important for us? Are we stunning them for our benefit so we can stay mm. awake? So I yeah. think that's what it was. Think- yeah, because they definitely knew who stunned them because they were all talking behind their backs later uh, at the end of the episode. It's like, oh, now they fear you. That's even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jennifer's character is fun. I'm in- I'm enjoying watching her get more involved in the plots. Yeah, it makes me want to go back to season one and watch their interactions when they did not like each other. Mm, yeah. I remember that, uh, I think Mariner was doing a holodeck simulation and jennifer was like uh excuse me i have this booked for my yoga class and, <laughs> and beckett's like yeah whatever but one thing i found out about andorians in the ds9 novel so i don't know if this is canon or not is that they have four genders and mm. and they are all required to participate in order to reproduce interesting and now with the invention of space travel and warp travel the Andorians are getting more distributed across the galaxy, and thus there are fewer opportunities to form these quads and reproduce. And so they are actually dying off. Their population is diminishing due to lower reproduction opportunities. And so I don't know if any of that is canon, but it's interesting whenever I see a Andorian in Starfleet, I was just like, oh, Oh, like, are you defying your family to be here? Are you causing your species to go extinct by being here? And now that brings in the additional context of what would they think about you dating a human? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I, one of the one of the pros and cons of Starfleet and the whole Star Trek universe, they tend to have a lot of humanoid aliens. Like, every alien kind of looks like a human, and you can assume they sort of have the same gender situation as humans, unless they specifically say they don't. So, there's still a lot of heteronormativity, but is it? Like, is cross-species, is that still technically the same gender or not? Or is everyone kind of openly queer and not? They just don't make a big deal of it in Star Trek? I don't know. I don't know either, but this is one of the few times we've seen a cross-species relationship in Star Trek. I'm saying that off the top mm-hmm. of my head. Maybe there are examples I'm not thinking of, but not well, only I mean, is Riker the- and Troy. I mean, she was at oh, least half Betazoid. That's true. And and Bolana and Paris. She's, she's also half Klingon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there are some examples in there, but this is certainly, I think, one of the first cross-species, same-gender relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if Andorians have four genders, then maybe it's not analogous to Mariner's gender, but we haven't seen that on the show, so I'm yeah. making some uh, statements that may not be wholly accurate here. Yeah. Well, and I'm not sure about the species of the younger couple on Discovery that's been introduced recently, where one of them is trans and also um, is it Trill? I'm blanking on what was yep. Dax's. Yeah, you're Trill. right. Yeah, but are they both human and one is also Trill, or is there some other thing going on? I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think one is human and the other is Trill, but they put the Trill symbiont into the human, which had never really right. been done before. So does that make them still human if they have Trill inside them? 
Yeah. Hmm. While they were born. It does make you question that. No. Yeah. Doesn't always matter what you were born as. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, they have trail of various species, I believe. How do you mean? But yeah. Well, I mean, if it's a trill symbiote, they don't just go into humans. I believe they've shown there are other aliens and whatnot as hosts. Usually they correctly. We've only seen trill symbionts in two species. Trill, which is what Dax is, mm-hmm. and human, which is both what Adira and Riker was. Because Trill were introduced on TNG, and William mm. Riker was the temporary host for a symbiont. Interesting. Uh, but they didn't really have that alien species fully fleshed out at that point, and they we haven't really seen it work the way it did with Riker, where Riker's personality got completely submerged when the Trill symbiont mm-hmm. was in it. And yeah. uh, they really made out whoever was carrying the symbiont to just be a host, almost like a blank body. And clearly that's mm-hmm. not what it is. It's a merging of personalities and histories. So yeah, who knows? Who knows? But. Yeah, they showed a bunch of them in Discovery, and now I just can't remember. Did they all look kind of the same or not? Or yeah, know. they did go it's to the Trill a dying race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else to say about here? All trust nothing. Oh, it was just a delightful episode. I'm probably going to rewatch it a bunch. <laughs> I feel like I need to watch it again. I feel like I think when I first watched it, I felt like maybe it was a little too fan servicey, but. Maybe I just need to not be so judgy and just sit back and enjoy the show. I mean, Lower Decks is largely fan service, and that's part of what I love about it. It's, oh, here's some stuff that's referencing, like, if you saw this original series episode with this, you're going to get that joke. And if you haven't, you won't. Uh, Like, a lot of little hidden jokes and things around, like, that one Collector episode where... They're just finding all this stuff from previous Star Trek series. Like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff is gold. And they don't seem to be wearing out the formula yet, which is kind of impressive. A show that's purely fan service often doesn't stay fun for as long mm-hmm. as Lower Decks has. And and maybe it's because they have so much to mine. I think if I had an issue with this episode, it might have been that DS9 had a lot of funny episodes. The relationship between Odo and Quark, between Odo and Bashir mm-hmm. were fantastic. The James Bond episode, the Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite episode, Trials and Tribulations, all fantastic. But the overall tone of DS9 was dark, which yeah. is in very sharp contrast to Lower Decks. And so yes. I was wondering how they were really going to meld that. And with just Kira and Quark, it's not like it's a full DS9 episode. So I think I just need to go back and rewatch this and remind myself, this is not a Deep Space Nine episode. This is a Lower Decks episode. I am really curious how they're going to do the guest, uh, special guest stars of Boimler and Mariner on Strange New Worlds, which we've been told is going to happen. Like, it's not going to be animated, is my understanding. But will it just be their voices or how is that going to work? And they've been kind of tight-lipped about how that'll work next season. But I'm really curious to see how it happens. Oh, it's next season? Yeah, for Strange oh, New okay. Worlds. Yeah. Did not know that. Oh. Huh. Well, that that will be fun. I didn't know that it would be live action. Uh, I believe it is, is live action is what they've said, yeah. Well, this is something I'm looking forward to even more now. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. 
I think we've pretty well covered the latest three episodes of Lower Decks. Enfys, is there anything else you want to talk about today? Just thanks for having me on. This has been delightful. Yeah. Do you want to plug anything or anywhere online that people might be able to find you? Sure. I am at Enfisbook on Twitter. That's E-N-F-Y-S-B-O-O-K. Also, that is my handle on Instagram, if you want to look me up there. I am an author, and I run a website called MajorRQueerna.com, where I write about uh, magic and queerness. So check me out any of those places. And that's magic with a lowercase m. Uh. Magic with a CK at the end. (laughs) So uh, magic that's more like ceremonial magic and not like magicians kind of thing. And definitely not the card game. Yeah, no. And not pulling rabbits out of hats. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Did you also want to plug your band? Oh, sure. Yeah, I am in a really silly, nerdy feminist band called the Misbehaven Maidens. And we have uh, our first pro music video coming out very soon which is very exciting, directed by Laser of the Double Clicks. Uh, But we have three albums that are available anywhere you can buy or stream music. They are a lot of fun. They are intended for 18 plus nerdy adults because we do swear and we have a lot of what we call single entendre, a lot of jokes about subjects you may not want to have to explain to your kids. I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that I have backed all your Kickstarters and I have all your albums. And you did a really cool thematic unboxing of, I believe, our first Kickstarter rewards. So oh. the the Ken universe and the Misbehaven Maidens universe have had a crossover event. <laughs> Aw, and it was live action. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although we are very animated individuals. Hey, that's very true. <laughs> We're basically just Muppets. <laughs> it's been a pleasure finally having you on the show and... Ha- you know, as you said, you've been on all the shows. I'm looking forward to having you on all future episodes as well. Now, we haven't scripted this. Do you want to sign us off like you do every episode? You'll have to remind me what the sign off is. <laughs> I think it goes something like, this has been Transporter Lock, a Star Trek podcast. So find more episodes, read our blog, and subscribe to our newsletter at transporterlock.com. For a whole bunch of stuff related to this show, go to transporterlock.com because I can't remember all that stuff that you just told me. <laughs> um, we can just use pre-recorded me to, to sign us out. I think that'd be fine. It's been a joy being on here and I am glad that I've at least heard a couple of compliments about uh, me doing the intro and outro. People like how it sounds. So I'm glad. I hope people enjoyed the voice for a much longer amount of time. Well, I certainly have. Enfys, it's been great chatting with you. And on that note, let's have you play us out. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. 